it list season. I don't know if it's list season around here, but yeah, we occasionally do some lists, we do some countdowns, and we come under fire when we do it. It's that time of year. It's the time of year where, unlike in December, when everybody out there, casuals and us alike, talk about how crazy college football is, how unpredictable it is, this is the time of year where if you say anything that anyone else isn't predicting, if you say anything that if it happened would have been crazy, you get labeled a heretic. And thus is my life in March and April and May and June and July. And then everyone crawls under a rock who criticized you come December when some of it pans out. What am I talking about? Well, don't worry. I won't keep you in the dark much longer. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. I'm Josh Pate. Ah, what day is it? It's Thursday. Yeah, we're not supposed to be doing this thing on Thursday. We're supposed to be doing it on Tuesday. But we had a little switcheroo this week because of storm chasing related reasons. So it's March 30th, year of our Lord, 2023. Thank you so much for filling the mailbag. That's all this thing is. We do it once a week, wall-to-wall question and answer, at Late Kick Josh, Twitter, at Late Kick Josh, Instagram, and I have fielded a, a cornucopia, if you will, of questions, and we're going to dive in here. So, let's start it off. Greg, in South Haven, Mississippi, asks, why is it that every single year, the teams projected to be the best are just a rehash? of the previous season's end results. And by the way, Greg made sure to point out he's talking about others, not me. Thank you, Greg. This is a a dilemma that we have in college football. I think it's especially a dilemma that some suffer from in preview magazine season, and that is when you pop open a preview magazine, a lot of it is just carryover from last year. A lot of it has to do with how many returning starters you have, of course. A lot of it has to do with returning production. Those things matter. I think one to more of a degree than the other. But then a lot of people just like to lean on, how did you end last year? And that's why Florida State's going to get a lot of traction. That's why Penn State's going to get a lot of traction. It's not the reason I particularly am going to give them a lot of traction. I'm not saying, on the other hand, that those things mean nothing, though. I just don't put as much weight in them necessarily as maybe the folks Greg's talking about. So uh, there's there's a healthy amount of inventory or stock, I guess, to be put into how did you close last year? Because last year is, by default, the closest thing we have to this year. But I think it also diminishes the importance somewhat of how different each season is. You don't get to carry anything over. You have to hit the reset button. And so Florida State, you know, you could take the field against LSU. I want you to think about this for a second. They open against LSU, right? Just like they did last year. And they're going to have months and months and months of hype built up around the program. I will contribute to it, spoiler alert. And then if it's 13 to 6 LSU at halftime, people have taken January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. They've taken eight months worth of hype and worth of opinion that they've built up in their mind, and it gets erased. And they will hop themselves on Twitter at halftime of a week one game and and question everything they thought over eight months. Think about how wild that is. It's reality, though. That's how, that's how unsustainable the model is of marrying yourself to preseason prediction. And I don't want to go down a rabbit hole that will take me 20 minutes to explain, but a lot of people come August who are new to our show always ask me, hey, why aren't you doing more predictions? We do some, but we don't just do prediction after prediction after prediction. And the reason is not because it wouldn't click well. Trust me, that's the most clickable content there is in August. We actually give up some of the traffic. We give up some of the clicks in exchange for the acknowledgement that there is so little skill in some of this that that's all it is. You're just throwing out the lowest hanging fruit. And the other part is what I've always been cautioned against. One of my mentors early on cautioned me against marrying yourself to preseason prediction. Because from, from January through August, nothing really happened. You do get some transfer portal additions. And you have spring practice. Uh, and you have some coaching changes. But, but nothing, nothing happens to the degree that should be required to build up these grandiose thoughts that people have on teams. All you have happen is time is on your hands. And with time on your hands, free time, idle time is the devil's playground, as Meemaw would say. And she was right, and never more so than in college football. Because you can convince yourself of some crazy things the longer we get into spring, and then especially summer. Take a vacation. Go to the beach. Please go on a cruise. Do something other than sitting around late at night thinking about, 
whether Louisville really could make a run at the playoff. Please don't do this to yourself. Because then week one comes around. And week one, you get to halftime, or you get to the, the end of the third quarter, or maybe even the end of a game. Remember North Carolina two years ago? This is where it bit me. North Carolina two years ago, I bought in on them big time. And I did the whole February, uh, June, August. I just built them up in my mind. And then they're on the road week one at Virginia Tech. Remember that? It was a Friday night game, I think. And they lose. It was a terrible year for them. And all of a sudden, after one game, you're rethinking everything. And what it does is if you, if you really dove into the preseason prediction machine, it starts making you question whether you know anything. It starts making you feel dumb. And so we don't want to feel dumb. So the way to circumvent that is just back off on the predictions like 30%. You can still give them. You can still pick your conference winners, who you think may win the Heisman. Yeah, we all do that, even if it's fun or if it's dead serious and you're betting on it. But, you know, picking the order of finishes and conferences, for example. CBS has me do it sometimes. I don't really think there's a lot of skill in it. So... I think going back to the question before we move on here, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of how you finished will be how you start the next year because there's nothing better to go on, I guess, or or at least um, the general public doesn't see anything better to go on. Uh, but the other part of that is it leads to an echo chamber, which I'm going to talk about a little later on. It leads to an echo chamber in a sense that all of a sudden, everyone, if they're going off the same criteria, they magically end up thinking the same things and predicting the same things. So then someone comes along and they predict something that sounds like this. Pretend it's uh, spring of 2022. And someone comes to you and says, TCU is going to play for a national title this upcoming year. You, you have completely eliminated them from the list of folks you take seriously, right? You have completely castigated them from the serious college football society. And you have convinced yourself they're an idiot. Here's what's crazy about it. Not only does TCU win the Big 12, well, they don't win the Big 12. Not only are they a contender all year, not only do they go play for the Big 12 championship game, they end up making the playoff, they beat Michigan, they go to the national title game. You will have forgotten that person, but you will have remembered the stigma that you placed around that person's name. Be careful about that. Because Someone who comes along and says something outlandish in summer, and then you say, oh, that person's an idiot. You may not even remember what made you think they're an idiot. You just remember, oh, I think they're an idiot. Now, come to find out, they may have been right about something. And the rest of the group you're hanging with may have been wrong. And yet, when you ask someone, hey, what's your opinion of that person uh, next year? Oh, they're an idiot. Why? I don't really remember. They're just wrong a lot. They just say a lot of crazy, hot, takeish stuff. It happens. Beware. Be on guard. It happens. Next up on this Late Kick Extra podcast on this Thursday on the eve of a, a multi-layered tornado outbreak in this country. If you're listening on Friday, it's go time. It's here. Uh, what is our next question, by the way? Happy to have you with us. Next question is, I, oh, it's not a question, but it's a statement. They're coming at me. So we got to come right back at them. Ten times as hard. Immunity. Uh, the statement from Jeffrey was, I got to be real. Picking Missouri to win the SEC is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard from you. Jesse, or uh, Jeffrey, yeah, I hope it wasn't Jesse. Jeffrey, you're in luck. I didn't pick Missouri to win the SEC. Now, I could stop here, and I could move on, because you don't really deserve any more time from me. But I do want to address something. So, the other night, I took a question out of the mailbag, and we answered it on Late Kick Live. And the question was, can you find me a dark horse contender in each conference? By definition, a dark horse is a team that if they won it, no one would see coming. So I cannot pick Georgia. I cannot pick Southern Cal in the SEC and Pac-12 respectively. I've got to pick Oregon State. Or I've got to pick Louisville. Or in the SEC, we went with Missouri. Not to win it. Not to win it. In fact, on the show, Jeffrey, that apparently you didn't watch and didn't listen to the criteria listed on, I said, this is not a prediction. This is something that if we could reasonably say it would happen one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand times, it's at least worth two minutes. And then I laid out how it would happen if it happened. 
and we talked about how four of their six losses last year were seven points or less. They had a top 35 defense. Uh, they return X amount of percentage production. Luther Burden is about to be a breakout start receiver. They got three quarterbacks up there they think they can win with. That kind of stuff. They, they get Florida and Tennessee at home. They don't play A&M or Alabama from the West. That sort of thing. Well, here's what happens. This is like an epidemic that we deal with, not just us. The people who run their mouths the most are the people who know the least about anything. Just 99% of the time, that's the case. You can apply that broadly across the entire spectrum of your life, and it's going to be true. The people who run their mouths the most know the least about what they're talking about. Here's what Jeffrey did. He didn't watch the show. Um, he probably saw a clip put out and then said, okay, I've seen all I need to see. This happens in, the, this happens in every walk of life. It happens in politics all the time. It happens in just day-to-day -day news cycles. It happens in college football too. Someone sees an account of someone who is looking to generate clicks themselves, by the way, who says, hey, Josh Pate just picked Missouri to win the East. Well, he didn't. He didn't. But you're not going to go do your research, Jeffrey. But unlike the people who are willing to do their research, who unfortunately keep their mouths shut, I wish it was the inverse. I wish you guys would talk more. You feel the most ready to run off and spout at the mouth about something. So to answer your question, Jeffrey, you thought it was dumb that I picked Missouri. Well, it would be. I think it's even more dumb you think I picked Missouri to win the SEC. We move on. Chase, ironically named here, Chase asked me, are you chasing Friday? Yes, Chase. I will be on the road tomorrow. I, I assume we have some new people listening because we have new listeners to every pod. I am a storm chaser. There you go. That's just what I am. College football, too, uh, in the fall. And it's year-round. We don't have an off-season. But I was talking to one of my buddies yesterday because he was asking me the same question. So we'll probably, to answer your question, we'll probably target an area from Jonesboro, Arkansas, to the boot hill of Missouri, to uh, Memphis, Tunica, Mississippi, somewhere around there tomorrow. I think it's also going to pop off in the western Illinois, eastern Iowa area, but I just feel a little bit better about Arkansas. So anyway, yes, Chase, I'll be on the road. So I was talking to a buddy yesterday, and he was asking me, where are you going to go? But this is a dude I grew up with. So then we circled the conversation around to when we were in middle school together at Harris County Carver Middle School in Hamilton, Georgia. I had the same fascinations then I have now. So, so to be clear, I got, I got three fascinations. I love college football. I love atmospheric science, especially tornadoes. I love freight trains. And like any other eight-year-old boy, except I just never changed. So he was talking to me about that, and he said, it's so crazy how you, you love the same stuff that you love them. And I said, well, I guess that is crazy if you think about it that way. I don't really think it's crazy. But then I started thinking to myself after the conversation, this is, this is dangerous. I was doing some, some introspection, some self-reflection. And I don't know how many of you do this regularly, but I was, I was doing it. So I was thinking to myself, if I were to go back to middle school and I were to think about the two things I can do now, one of them I would have thought was pure fantasy. So if you told me you're ever going to make a living getting to talk about college football. That would be pure fantasy. I've explained that story before. I just didn't get that that was a possibility. I always thought that was this other world that uh, the select few lived in, and I was never going to be able to do that. I would just have to have a normal job. And then if you were to tell me not only that, but and keep in mind, this is like the height of the Twister era. This is the mid to late 90s. If you were to tell me also, you're going to live a life where you get to do that one thing you love. So you get to cover college football. Someone's actually going to pay you a few dollars to talk about it and go to all the games for free. Then you're going to get your schedule structured in a way that spring frees you up so you can go chase tornadoes anywhere in the country you want to. I started thinking about what I would have reacted like if you told me that. Because I would have defined that as a dream scenario. I would have defined that as like a, a dream version of the way to live life. And it never happens like that. See, if you were to drop it on me like that, I would look around and it would be as if the gates of heaven have just opened up. Just, oh. But it kind of, you know, it evolved into what it is now. So sometimes it really helps to just kind of step back, pinch yourself and say, hold on a second. Do you realize, and this is again, me talking to myself. It's really weird. Just roll with me here. Sometimes you just have to talk to yourself and you have to say, self, do you realize 
there are a bunch of people who have to go to jobs they hate every day. I know because I've done it before. Trust me. Still me talking to myself. And now you're in a situation where you can, you can do what you love in the fall, which also gives you the freedom to do what you love in the spring. And there's never a time you have to not do what you love. And then you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, got, got it pretty good. Pretty blessed life to be living. So, Chase, yes, I will be on the road tomorrow, and I am very blessed to be able to do it. Because look, even before I move on here and get back to college football, even if you have a job you love and you also love storm chasing, pretty much all of the rest of your jobs require you to work the same schedule year-round. Most of you don't, don't work uh, an on-off sort of cycle like we do in, in sports and college football. So, and, and also, it, happens, it just so happens that our on-cycle is the fall, and so in the spring, we can just, like, we're going to have a, we're gonna have a tornado outbreak tomorrow. I'm telling you right now, we're going to have another one Tuesday, a big one Tuesday. So just heads up there. Uh, your local weatherman may not be ready to tell you yet, but I'm going to tell you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pop off big time next Tuesday. We can just structure our show. If I need to do a Thursday show next week because I want to be free Tuesday, I can do it. If I want to do a Tuesday show this week so I can be free Thursday and Friday, we can do it. It's a crazy thing. All right, let's get back on track. Back on the rails, if you were. Hate asked us, what counts as a ranked win? Tate, I know what entrapment is. And I know when someone's trying to entrap me. But I appreciate it. Because I think that, I think you, you probably have me a little bit here. Um, okay. A ranked win in college football is something we all argue about. What is a ranked win? If Tate State is ranked number six to start the season, and you beat me to start the season, but then I fall off a cliff and I finish six and six, and I'm unranked at the end of the year, did you have a ranked win? Conversely, if you play Pate State in week one, and I'm not ranked, and you beat me, but then Pate State goes on to finish 11 and one, and I'm ranked top 10 by the end of the year, does that retroactively count as a ranked win? It's what we would call a classic conundrum, isn't it? I think about it like this. I, I can go back to last year. Okay, my, my answer, by the way, is it is a case-by-case -case basis. That's, that's what a ranked win is, case-by-case. Case. I can go back to last year. If you play Texas A&M to start the season, A&M was ranked in the AP Top 10. I, in retrospect, am, am freely ready to admit, no, Texas A&M was not a Top 10 caliber team. Having said that, there are also very famous examples in recent history. I don't need to go back any further than, I think, 2017 to remember that huge opener, Bama versus Florida State. Florida State and Bama both top five. And DeAndre Francois was the quarterback for Florida State. So Bama is about to close out a win against them in Atlanta. And then DeAndre Francois gets hurt. I think Ronnie Harrison knocked him out for the season. Florida State goes off the rails. It may have been earlier than 2017, but point remains. Florida State season goes off the rails. They finish unranked. At the end of the year, people wanted to tell me that's not a ranked win for Alabama. And I, I'm like Jason Bateman in, in Ozark. The, the blimp, it's not. Absolutely it is. Because the impact that playing Alabama had on Florida State definitely contributed to them falling off a cliff. You, you shouldn't be able to put a hurting on a team so thoroughly that the consequences of the hurting you put on them, knocking them off the rails, negates the quality of the win for you. And yet, that takes a lot of nuance and context to explain. And we live in a soundbite, meme, gif, snapshot world. So it's a whole lot easier to just make these, these quick little quips that, that really traffic well on Twitter and Instagram that promote the argument, Nope, you are what your record says you are. So at the end of the year, the way we measure your strength of schedule is at the end of the year, we see where all the teams you played wound up, and that's how we, we determine your strength of schedule. And I hate it. I hate it because the, the follow-up, when we, when we play each other in week three, the impact, the toll that we take on each other uh, impacts us the rest of the year. And so I've, I've always hated that. So my general rule, and there are exceptions to it. But my general rule has always been define the value of the game the day you play the game. And I don't need to use the AP, by the way. I have long been a proponent of using Vegas odds making for, for this 
purpose for defining strength of schedule. Because you, you could see teams ranked in the AP top five that are never in Vegas as top 10. And then those AP top five teams start losing some close games. Then they drop into the 20s and Vegas still has them in the teens. And Vegas was right both times is the point. So they're a lot more consistent. The odds making market, the power rating community is normally a lot more consistent to the point where I would love to take them, that entity, the odds making community, and I would love for them to be able to determine the strength of your schedule and the value that should be placed on either a win you got or the, the subtraction from your strength of schedule that should be placed on a loss that you had. And so that's the way I would value. And I would not even use the term ranked win. If I ran things, I wouldn't use the term ranked win because it, um, it goes back to one of the questions I've always presented, a scenario, if you will. So think about this. If I play the number one team in the country, the number two team in the country, and then 10 of my other games are against the bottom 10 teams in America. And then you play number 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. That, that is your one through 12. That is your 12 games. If you play, you played 12 teams ranked 26 through 40. I played two teams ranked in the top five, and then the rest of them were outside of 110. I would be considered to have the stronger schedule because I played two top 25 teams. Forget about them being ranked one, two. Pretend I played the number 21 and 22 teams in the country, and then the rest of them were in the hundreds, and you played number 26 through 38. My schedule, according to the top 25 wins metric, would be stronger than yours. You played a way stronger schedule than me there. But because we have this random line in the sand that we draw after 25, someone on a television show on Selection Sunday would say, nope, nope, nope. Look at this fancy graphic we have. So-and-so has two top 25 wins, whereas so-and-so X has none. I've never liked that. So uh, I know it's convoluted, but it is. It is convoluted. I would like to define it on the day it happens. That's where the value of the game is for me. I want to define the value then and freeze it, lock it in, so that we, we don't fall to the temptation of changing the value afterwards because that team has subsequently gone and lost more games because of the possibility that that team's losing more games because you either injured them or you mentally drained them. That happens all the time. Um, there are exceptions. I have always been a proponent of going back and retroactively adding the value of a win because there, there are times, there absolutely are times where you play a team and we don't know how good they are that early in the year. And then later in the year, you're saying, you know, in retrospect, that win, that loss we had wasn't so bad, was it? I don't have a problem with that because there's no, there's no risk in doing that. There's big risk in just deciding to remove values of wins when I beat you in week three, and then you're, you're off in week 11 losing, and you've lost like seven starters since the time we played, and you're not even the same team I faced. So that's how I determine the value of a win. It's, com it's complicated, but it's doable. Next question. From Trophy Club, Texas, craziest weather you've endured at a college football game. I think some of you have much better stories than me on this. The one I could think about was 2015. And that was in Georgia, Athens, Georgia, where that was the year that Bama lost to Ole Miss. I think it was that crazy five turnover game. And Bama loses to Ole Miss. And then Nick Saban has his press conference where he says, hey, we're going we're gonna to play this rest of this season the right way, but we're not doing it for you. And he was talking to the media. He said, because if we left it up to you, we're dead and buried and gone, gone. He said gone twice. Sounded like a movie scene. So um, they go to Georgia, Bama at Georgia the next week, do or die. It was the first time in years Bama had been a point spread underdog. And about Tuesday of that week, it became pretty apparent it is going to flood in Athens, Georgia this Saturday. And there was a huge system off the East Coast. And so sure enough, we go up there and it's been raining all day. And Bama comes in there. They play at as high a level as I've ever seen. Weather did not impact them one bit. They just throttled Georgia. And as the game set in, so too did the heavier rain. And there was a point, I remember this so vividly, 
because I was working in local news at the time, so I had to film the game on the sideline. And I'm out there with, with 17 kinds of garbage bags over my head trying to stay dry, trying to keep the camera dry, because the camera's far more important than you. And I am recording, and so there was a time where it was 38-3 to 3 Alabama. And I, you always zoom in on the scoreboard, because when you go back and you cut your footage, you want a reference point. So you zoom in on the scoreboard after a big play, because number one, that marks, hey, remember, you wanted to use this play. And number two, it lets you know what the situation in the game was. And I remember looking at a shot of that scoreboard, and when you zoom back out, there was such heavy rain coming down that it distorted the focus on the scoreboard. And I remember thinking, this has to be the most miserable experience for a Georgia fan, because they, they see the Alabama game in the preseason. Obviously, it's hot on the secondary ticket market. Then Bama loses, and they're bleeding, and you think to yourself, hey, this is going to be the biggest win of the Mark Richt era, and, and Georgia could catapult themselves into national title contention. And it was just Derrick Henry, Calvin Ridley, uh, Jacob Coker, Minka Fitzpatrick, Marlon Humphrey. They just smoked him, never, never in doubt. And 38-3, to with it pouring down rain in the second half, traffic was not bad on the way home. Because those folks had long been gone by the time it was, it was us exiting Sanford Stadium. So that's one I remember. The Ohio State-Michigan snow game a couple of years ago is one I remember. But like I just said, I mean, a Big Ten fan, a Michigan fan is listening to that saying, you think that was, was snow? You think that was crazy weather? I'm telling you, for me, growing up in, in the armpit of Georgia, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy weather. For you, maybe not so much. I've experienced a lot of hot games, and those aren't crazy weather. It's just miserable weather. Um, I was also thinking the other day, someone, someone was asking me, hey, what kind of revolutionary change could you make to college football that would actually work? And the answer is, I'm not making this change, but I thought about a change. Just, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for this. Please don't misunderstand me, as, as some of you will anyway. I want you to think about this for a second, though. Pretend like we just reinvented the sport and we played it in the spring. So follow me here. Right now we played in the fall and it coincides with fall semester. And then Christmas is kind of the finish line. And that's where in college football, we're also having bowl season and eventually the playoff after the new year. And, and so we're used to it starting off hot and becoming cold, right? So think about if we just inverted it. We played college football on the spring semester. So we know that we got Christmas and we've got New Year's. And then when we come back, when, when America collectively checks back in for the new year, that's when college football season starts. So we start it in the coldest weather season. And then we play like late January, February, March, April. And then May, about the time that semesters are ending, that's the time where we're doing our conference championship games and our playoff. and I, I just think about how great spring is. So I think about how great days getting longer are. I think about how great it is to see flowers blooming, grass is green again. In Nashville, I'm telling you, winter sucks because the days end at like 3.30. But in spring, it, it, there are few cities in America that are greater spring cities than Nashville. And so I look around and I'm thinking, this is great. We got March Madness going on. The Masters is around the corner. The weather is awesome. What if you threw college football on top of that? And so if there were this reinvention of the sport in a way that would work, playing college football in spring would work. If that's how they invented the game 100 years ago, it would work. Now, of course, it's not something I'm advocating for because we have trained ourselves to look ahead to the fall and we've trained ourselves that Bowl season fits in a certain place and blah, blah, blah. But that's only because you've been conditioned to think that way. If we grew up in a world where they just always played it in the spring, I think you'd learn to look forward to the spring. Uh, we already look forward to it anyway. I don't know nearly as many people that look forward to winter as look forward to spring. I was one of those weirdos who used to love winter. No moss. I got myself out of that line of thinking. No, you give me, give me spring. Give me pollen. And I'm, I'm deeply vulnerable to pollen and allergies. Give it to me. I want to sneeze my head off. I sneeze to the point of losing my voice sometimes because I sneeze pretty violently, as I think I've shared with you before. You give me, if, if my sun's setting at eight o'clock, I'll, I'll take sneezing in exchange for several hours more daylight. All right, next up. 
Very important question here. Besides the Notre Dame overrated and college football playoffs need to be expanding arguments, what are the other casual takes you're sick of having to argue against? I want to point something out before I give you my answer. Yes, Notre Dame being overrated is a casual take. I don't automatically call you a casual if you support college football playoff expansion. Some of the arguments you use, I think, are casual arguments. But if you just think the sport would be better, or if you just flat out prefer a bigger playoff, all we have there is a disagreement. You're not a casual just because you think that. Not everything I disagree with is dumb or stupid. There may be some things that I think that you think are stupid. So I wanted to point that out. I don't think you're automatically casual because you happen to harbor an opinion I disagree with. But since you asked, we did come up with a couple. We were talking right before we started recording today. And one of the things I cannot stand, I mean, I mean, hate it at a cellular level, is when I have to open my DMs on Sunday or I have to listen to talk radio on Monday, or I have to talk to a buddy of mine, one in particular who's famous for this, and they tell me how they should have won a game. We should have won. Now, we didn't, but we should have won a game. And then you start diving in a little bit, and you ask, what do you mean you should have won it? If you should have, you would have, right? No, 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 no. No, we should have won it, but we didn't. Some things happened. What happened? Well, come to find out, football happened. Come to find out, a call went against you. Or come to find out your running back fumbled the ball uncharacteristically at the three-yard line in a big game in the red zone late, and you lose by one possession. So, so in your mind, all I would have to change is that one thing, and then we would have won. Translation, we should have won. That's not how it works. I hate, again, to be the bearer of bad news. That's not how competition works. It's not Xbox. Can't hit reset. And it's also real-life people meaning that their mistakes are part of the outcome. Their execution, or lack thereof, is part of the outcome. And what else I've noticed about the should-have-won crowd is they never remember the mistakes that were made by the other team. They never remember the calls that went in their favor. They never remember the calls that went against their opponent. They, re- they may in the moment remember giggling at their TV and saying, we'll take it, we'll take it. Oh, will you? I bet you will. So where is that? Hey, hey, where's the we should have lost? I got some respect for you, at least if you'll come to me and say, boy, we should have lost that game. Remember the Georgia-Ohio State playoff game this past year? You should. It was crazy. Kirby Smart went on the post game and said, yeah, we probably should have lost that game. I'm like, Kirby, no, don't go down that road. But he did. Hey, at least he's saying we we should have lost. The we should have won crowd is insufferable. Insufferable. It's fine to say we lost because of something, and it's even fine to say we lost because of something that doesn't normally happen. But don't be saying you should have won because of things that directly are baked into the outcome of a game. Our receiver dropped a critical third down pass. Yeah, that's part of the game. He's not a robot. He's a person. Uh, the, the, The games are made perfect through their imperfections. And then the other one, which I have just railed against for eternity, is guys who question play calling. And this hits a lot of you right there in the groin. But we got to talk about it. Questioning play calling. It drives me up a wall. I guess it's because I've been around it a little bit. I'm not an expert on it. I've never called plays myself. I've never coached myself in football, at least. But I know the intricacies of this. Because one of my favorite things to do when I visit with coaching staffs is have them walk me through What goes into a play call? And I don't just mean calling it on game day. I mean backing all the way up to 23 years ago when they were at a clinic in Dothan, Alabama, and they were introduced to a concept or a scheme or the way to work this play or this concept off a scheme. And then it goes from a pizza box to all of a sudden it's in their playbook. And then they rep it in high school practice. And then later on that coach starts to elevate himself up the ranks and he knows exactly what to do in what situation, what would work against this look, depending on which players you have and which players they have. Then years later, he is the, he's the offensive coordinator for Kansas State and he knows his personnel intimately better than you do. He knows the opposition's personnel intimately better than you do. He knows what they're good at and what they're not good at. He knows because it's time-tested which of his principles and which of his formations and and which of his approaches to offense or defense 
will work in which situations if they're executed the right way. And then he knows what they've repped during the week and, and back up even further. That's that summer, that fall camp during installs, spring during installs, they've understood what will work and what won't work. Uh, they've got it down to percentages. You would have your mind blown. If I could show you the research that these staffs have today on, on percentages of what will work, a lot of them, a lot of them do heat maps, um, which is just, it's, it's mapping the field, and then it's each play, what works against what look at which point on the field. You got the reds where it's, where it's more likely to work and the blues where it's less likely to work. They've got all that stuff. And they've, they've worked, well, not quite 20 hours a day, but, but 16-hour days during the week to be equipped to where it's almost, it's almost machine-like on game day. And I got folks who are working, driving a Coke truck during the week. God bless you. I, I think Atlanta steals a little of the credit that Columbus should have when it comes to inventing Coke. But that's another pod. I got folks driving a Coke truck during the week who, who have not spent a day on campus in Manhattan, Kansas during the week. They don't know the personnel. They especially don't know the opponent's personnel. And they're sitting here, and it's third and three on the 22-yard line. And they are not taking into account anything other than, well, you know, I, I think they should run this. And then your offensive coordinator doesn't run what you think he should run, and it doesn't work. And you start questioning play calling. And you don't know 1% of what just went into that play call. And you have no idea why it didn't work. You don't even know if it was the play call. You don't even know if a quarterback didn't check out of something at the line of scrimmage. You don't even know if a receiver who was supposed to run a, a, a 10 and in just ran a 10 and out instead and a ball sails incomplete or, or a pass doesn't even get made because the end cut is not made. And then the quarterback runs for himself. So it's supposed to be a 10-yard in, dude runs the wrong route, quarterback runs it, and you're yelling at the TV, why would we call a quarterback keeper? You don't know what you don't know. I could take Nick Saban. I could take Kirby Smart. I could take Lincoln Riley. I could take the, the highest profile coaches in the game. I could sit them down next to you. They're not equipped to question play calling in your game because they don't even know what they don't know about that particular game and that particular matchup and that particular staff and what they've talked about during the week. It drives me crazy. It's a losing battle because I know it's so easy and there's no risk for you. You could yell at your TV. You could yell in the, in the, in the, to the abyss, really, all day if you want to about how bad our play calling was because you know no one's ever going to come back at you. No coach is ever going to get in your face and say, you want to talk about play calling? Let's talk about play calling. That's why my biggest concept show that I would, I would love to bankroll if we could, but we can't because no one would participate, is I would love to just take fans who complain about play calling, and I would love to get them face-to-face -face with like a million dollars on the line for charity, and I would love to get them face-to-face -face and debate about a play call. You can pick the play, by the way. You can pick the play. But as long as that coach agrees with his play call, I just want you two to go head to head. I want you to watch how quickly your head's spinning because he's going to come to the table equipped with all the information and intel he has, and you get to come to the table with all the intel and information that you have, and he's about to beat you over the head with what he has. And look, either that's going to happen or he's going to lose his job because you run circles around him, at which point he doesn't need to have a headset on anymore. So either way, I would be entertained. Either way, there is no, there is no loss. Next up. Uh, this one's from Austin, Texas. Hoger hit us up and said, what are your thoughts on neutral site games in the regular season? I personally hate them and think the Red River shootout is the only one that should exist. All the other ones are downgrades over just playing the games at home, in my opinion. Your opinion is very close to my opinion. That is a game that I have an affinity for. The Red River shootout is a game that I would absolutely keep neutral until the end of time. I got to tell you something about that in a second, by the way. I don't mind Georgia, Florida being in Jacksonville, but I also would not care if they moved it to home campuses. I don't have an attachment to Jacksonville, Florida. I know some of those fan bases do, but look, I think they may move that game on campus one day in the not-too-distant future, so let's watch that. But by and large, I hate them, is my point. I don't like neutral site games. And 
especially the ones that are not annual. So Georgia, Florida, and Austin, and, uh, and Texas, Oklahoma, those are annual. Those have happened every year since most of us have been alive. Tennessee announces the other day they're going to play NC State in Charlotte to start next year. They're playing Virginia in Nashville to start this year. Blah. No, thank you. No, thank you. I was doing radio in Knoxville yesterday. We were talking about this very thing. And I was just thinking out loud, which can be dangerous at times. I was thinking to myself, you know, I already don't like them. But then when you think about how few a home game, how, how, how few home games you get during a year in football as opposed to baseball, it makes it even more egregious. Major League Baseball plays 162 games. You get 81 of them at home. So if you want to go play a series in Cooperstown or Australia or the moon, I don't care because I'm not really going to miss out on much of anything. My ticket holders are not missing out on much of anything. But if, if you're Tennessee and you're passing up an opportunity to play a game in Neyland Stadium, or if you're, if you're Oregon and you're passing up a chance to play in Autzen Stadium, I'm not on board with that. I'm not on, there is, there is no argument you could sell me on because really here's what it comes down to. They can talk about how they want to get into another market to recruit all they want to. It's about money. I know that's a surprise to everyone, but it's about money and the most vested interest that any entity has in those neutral site games is the neutral site. Charlotte, Atlanta, Dallas, wherever it is. Those places are the places that benefit. The fans don't benefit. Like, give me a break. Even people who live in Charlotte, even Tennessee fans who live in Charlotte, if you ask them what the better experience would be, it's driving to Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah, it's convenient, and they're going to go to the game because it's in their backyard, but it's, that's not the experience. There's an authenticity, there's a purity about experiencing college football in the environment it's supposed to be experienced in. Don't mess with that. If you've got something that works, why in the world would you mess with it? This works. That's why I'm not messing with it. Watch. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you expect a lot of things, but you don't expect the ad break inside the answer. It's like a little pig in a blanket, except it's an ad break inside an answer. So the one thing that I was talking about there with Sark and with Texas and with Oklahoma is I was listening to Sark the other day, and I forget where he was doing an interview. He was on a show somewhere, and he was talking about this game. Someone asked him about OU Texas being in the Cotton Bowl, and he said the same things about it I say about it. It's great, awesome, state fair, blah, blah, blah. And then someone pointed something out. They said, go back and listen closer. Did he just give something away? And I said, what are you talking about? I listened pretty close. I didn't listen close enough, though, because when I went back and listened, I caught it. He said, we still play that game. He either said, we still play it at the Cotton Bowl, or for now, it's still at the Cotton Bowl. I don't want to alarm anyone, but I'm freaking out over it. So I really hope Steve Sarkeesian steps up and just says, no, I don't know anything you don't know. I just happen to say that. Because uh, I'm, I'm ready to start a conspiracy theory that they're taking that game out of the Cotton Bowl and moving it to Jerry World, which is one of my bigger fears in life. I, I, don't live, I don't live a fearful life, but I am scared of OU Texas moving from the Cotton Bowl. So Steve Sarkeesian, I'm sure he's glued to every show and every podcast. Could you please come out and clarify? Do you know that terrible news is on the horizon? And if you don't, could you please set my mind at ease? And the minds of pretty much every other legit college football fan that has been to this game at ease. There you go. I'm doing the work for you guys. Next up, we've got a question about parody. I've got a question to you about parody. How many of you spell this with a D? How many of you spell this P-A-R-O-D-Y? I am not asking to make fun of you. I'm asking because I spelled it with a D for a long time. 
Now, I have corrected. I have seen the error of my ways. I have corrected myself. But it's one of those words that you say a lot, but you rarely see it written. We've got those words. You, just, you don't see them written all that often. Uh, for the record, the right spelling is P-A-R-I-T-Y. And I think a lot of you just, just got your tongue burned, but it's okay because it's just you and me talking. So you can silently make the correction. You can Homer Simpson yourself back into the bushes and you never have to get called out publicly because I did one day. I got called out so you don't have to. But we got hit with a question from Auburn, Alabama. Do you think there will ever be parity in college football compared to college basketball? Well, never. I don't think we'll ever have parity in college football the likes of which we have in college basketball. I look around college basketball right now. You haven't heard me say anything about it. You haven't seen me publicly say anything about it. I probably, I may watch the Final Four. It will not be appointment viewing for me. It will not be destination television for me, even as a CBS employee. So there you go. If you think they send me a script to read every week, they may send one, but Jesse never gives it to me. I, I am a believer that what is best for television is the big brands playing. Now, what I'm not telling you is you should care about that. That's why I've kept my mouth shut on it. Because I, I know it, come college football season, I always get mad when fans start talking about how the ratings were down for this game or, or revenue was down. That stuff doesn't impact you. You're not a stakeholder. Just enjoy the game if you enjoy the game. And if you don't, don't watch it. That's, that's me right now with college football. I don't really care about FAU basketball. I don't really care about, about uh, San Diego State basketball. So I probably won't watch the Final Four. Or if I do, I'll just kind of check it out sparingly. But that's my prerogative. That's fine. If you're a college hoops guy and you're glued to it right now, good for you. Enjoy what you enjoy. But I'm saying all that to say in college basketball, there's this big uproar right now of, is it, is it the best thing for these non-blue blood powers to be where they are? It's competition. It's, competition's always a good thing. The structure of college basketball will never be like the structure of college football. And so you know, it's, it, there are 50 million differences between the two sports. But I just want you to understand what, what it takes to make the engine of a college football program go versus what it takes to make the engine of a college basketball program go. College basketball is like a NASCAR race in that you could watch however many cars they have. I think it's like 42 or something like that. You could watch 42 cars racing. And there's a car that's in first place, especially early in the race. There's a car in first place. There's a car in 42nd place. Do you see how tightly packed together they are? Now, over the course of that race, Folks are going to wreck. Folks are going to fall off the pace. Someone will finish 30 laps down. But this is the NCAA tournament. So this is like a few laps around the track. There's not enough time for that distance to show up. And so car 42, my point is, is about three seconds behind car number one, max. Three seconds on the NASCAR tracks in eternity. So that means there's not a ton of separation. So when you put them on a basketball court, and you, you just play a 40-minute game, hey, crazy stuff can happen. College football is not that way. College football, there are teams who you could put on the field with Georgia 100 times, and they're never winning. And I'm talking about teams worse than TCU, but need I remind you what happened even when we put TCU on the field against Georgia in a national championship game? There will never be the parity that you long for, if, if it is parity you long for. I would argue to you, that it is enough parody that a TCU even made it to the national title game. I would argue it's enough parody uh, that, that a program like Clemson was able to go from being a joke to doing what they do now, and they never landed like a number one class. Uh, they never, I guess Clemson's a decent example. My, my point is there have been teams, Cincinnati made the playoff last year, two years ago, I guess now. Uh, so we've had some parody. I just... That's why I always ask you guys who are, who are expansionists, what is it you're looking for when you're expanding the playoff? Because even though some of you won't admit it to me, a lot more will admit it to me. You're looking for more of what they have in college basketball. You're looking for more craziness at the end of the road, and you're not going to get it. I'm not saying you'll never get upsets. I'm not saying that at all. 
uh, TCU just upset Michigan in a in a four game or a four team field. So yeah, it'll happen occasionally. But I always look at a postseason tournament as a mechanism to crown a champion. That's its purpose. And if it's never going to change the champion we crown, I don't really care about changing the format. And and if it's change, even if it's changing the champion we crown. If I think it's diluting the product, even then I don't want it. That kind of explains my my stance against expansion in a nutshell. I am not about the journey through the playoff. I'm not about that. Because I got I got a four-month journey. It's the regular season. That's my journey. I, I've already got plenty of journey. I listen to journey as a band. I love the journey as a college football fan during the season. So, I, no, you will not get that kind of parody. I don't think you'll... No one would ever sell me on that. Frankly, I don't even hear many people of sound mind make the argument i don't even hear people try and sell me on it anymore. uh let's see next up this was an interesting question here so connor asked which of the roster building strategies will be more successful in the long term recruit and develop or transfer portal basically the Dabo swinney approach versus the lane kiffin approach from starkville mississippi there's an interesting comparison here. There's also an interesting point that has to be made. Sure, you've got Lane Kiffin, who is dipped heavily into the transfer portal, and you've got Dabo Swinney, who really doesn't want much to do with the transfer portal. They're all about recruiting and developing. It's important to remember, at one place, they get to choose their approach. At the other place, they don't. Dabo Swinney at Clemson is so well-resourced and so well-positioned, they can choose any approach they want. So can Georgia. So can Ohio State. So can USC, so can Alabama. Ole Miss can't do that. Ole Miss does not get to do whatever they want to do. Now, I'm not saying they don't literally get to choose their approach. I'm saying if they want to compete at a reasonably high level, Ole Miss doesn't get to say, all right, how's Bama doing it? We'll just do it the exact same as them. How's how's Kirby doing it? We'll do it the exact same as them. Gap's too big. The have and have not gap is too big in this sport. And Ole Miss, while they're not a poverty program, they are not in the halves tier that the Bamas and Georgias of the world are. And so they have to go about things a different way. Clemson does not have to do that. They choose to do that. Ole Miss has to do it. And so with that, you got to credit Lane Kiffin. You got to credit Ole Miss for doing the same thing to a degree that Chip Kelly's realized he can do. Ironically, in the transfer rankings this past cycle, so far, Ole Miss is six and UCLA seven. And those are the two programs I'm looking at right now as being kind of comparable West Coast to closer to the East Coast, realizing we're not going to recruit in the top five. And that's a waste of time to think we will. But what we can do is we can present ourselves to be a viable, attractive option in the transfer market. Because as we've seen many times now, the criteria and the priorities for a transfer student are a lot different than a high school student. As for what will work long term, I would always lean towards recruiting and developing working as a theory long-term. Um, but at the same time, what, what do you really do? Like, what's your alternative? Lane Kiffin's doing what he has to do. And they, they land kids. They just got Suntareen Perkins. That's one of the best linebackers in this class. So like I said, Ole Miss is not a poverty program. It sounds like I'm painting them that way. They're not a poverty program, but they're also, they're not going to recruit heads up against uh, the top five brands in college football. And Lane Kiffin knows that and, and credit him for knowing it to the point where he said, we got to do something different. And so they've done a little something different there. But I mean, I don't think there's a substitute for recruiting and developing your guys. Kirby won the national title last year and, and found any microphone he could to remind you, we didn't go in the transfer portal a single time this past cycle. They will, they do, but uh, there's a lot of pride to be taken in not having to have gone that route. There's no shame in going that route, but there is added pride to be taken in not having to go that route. Because ultimately, a lot of coaches look at having to use the portal as having to fill a mistake that you made. Either a misevaluation or not being able to keep a guy on campus. Sometimes that is your fault. Sometimes it's out of your control. But I, um, yeah, I, I look, I'm interested to see what Clemson is this year. It's not a Clemson prediction segment, but it's going to be a lot of weight is going to be put into their result this year as it relates to whether Dabo's approach makes sense or not. So, 2023, yet another thing that we're looking very much forward to. 
Oh, we got a, hey, we got a question with a palm tree emoji in it. So that always attracts my attention. Remington from Pace, Florida, home of Pace Academy, I think. Pace, Florida, uh, Remington hit us up and said, which moment first made you fall in love with college football? So I thought of one off the radar today, but I thought of one. I got a buddy of mine who he and his dad once took me to a North Carolina, Georgia Tech game. Random. I didn't grow up a fan of either team. They just took me to the game. Reggie Ball was the quarterback for Georgia Tech back then. And um, so I remember I've never been to a sporting event that I can remember otherwise where I didn't have any rooting interest. I just was there observing. I, I've always gone to games and had a rooting interest, as, as is the case with most of you. So I remember watching, and neither one of those teams were in any kind of BCS contention that year. They weren't in contention for the ACC title, I don't think. And uh, yet Grant Field, in, in, or Bobby Dodd Stadium, Grant Field there in Atlanta, it was sold out. And I remember watching, and I was young, I remember watching the crowd. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like the top five in the BCS, whatever it was that year, those teams are playing right now. And there are big consequential games happening all over the country. And yet these people here are so dialed into this game. These people here couldn't care less about anything else outside this stadium. And I remember thinking to myself how that was the wildest concept. I guess that's the day it kind of clicked for me. The beauty of the regular season and the beauty, which we've lost the concept of, by the way, of not needing to tie everything to the postseason to have value. That afternoon, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, 2000, whatever, it was early 2000s, I remember realizing this, this little environment here, it exists independently of anything going on outside of it. No one had to show up and put rankings next to the teams. No one had to show up and put a, a trophy on the line or, or a playoff spot on the line or BCS or ACC championship. They just care because that logo on the side of that helmet means so much to so many of these people. They're just invested because of that. And they don't need anything else. And it was like 54 degrees, crisp, clear fall afternoon. It was great. I think Georgia Tech won the game. I remember the experience and the observations more than even the outcome of the game. So that's what I remember. And then I got far more, far more recent memories, obviously. But that was the first one uh, that really made me fall in love with college football. It made me realize this is so much different than pro sports. And I think that's what made me start leaning college football over NFL. Love, I, love, I, I was a Falcons fan growing up. I don't really have time to watch the NFL much these days. But yeah, I watched the pro game going up, growing up. But it ain't the college game. Uh, Brian asked, do you think there needs to be a change to sideline density and the amount of people, the crowds on the sideline to improve player and personnel safety? Once you notice it, it's hard to ignore all the sideline collisions that could be easily avoided? My answer here is yes, uh, but I got to be careful, very careful, because of the protocol that I employ myself. So when I go to games, I don't go to the press box. I have any SID who will work with me, and 98% of them will. I have them give me a sideline pass. I'm not down there recording. I am down there observing. And technically, that's what the press box is for. Now, I know to stay out of the way. I know exactly how to get out of the way. I know not to be standing on that front white dashed line. And if you look on the field, that's basically the, um, the boundaries for the press. And by press, I mean people there in an active role recording the game, filming the game. I know to stay behind those folks. I know to get out of the way. I've got very, very good what I would call withitness, self-awareness. That's also the reason you would never see me drive it slow in the left lane, for example. So I know to stay out of the way, but you do notice a lot of times people don't. And in fairness, you go to these bigger schools, some of the more wealthy alumni in exchange for getting those checks have been promised sideline access at a game. And that's just the way it is, Bruce Hornsby. And you're not going to change that. And I get it. I get it. Um, but what happens is those are people being put on a football field that are not used to being on the field. And I have seen some wicked collisions on sidelines 
that were results of people just not having awareness about where they were, not having spatial awareness. But I'll tell you what puts you the most at risk. People who watch the ball are the most at risk. And you would think maybe, no, Josh, if you follow the ball, then that means you're following the play. And that means you'll always know if the play is coming towards you. No, following the ball is just that. You're following the ball. But here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes there is a defensive back being stalk blocked by a receiver towards you that's 20 yards away from the ball. And you're not watching it because you're watching the ball. And all of a sudden, your head's down the field and you're blindsided. And they chop block you and it's legal because you're not in the game. You don't have a helmet on. The other thing I see a lot of times is when the action does come towards you, there's an incomplete pass. So a lot of times the ball will sail over your head and your head goes up and you're looking behind you. Hey, the guys that were running the routes that were meant to catch that pass, they're coming towards you. The defenders covering those guys and probably covering them so good it warranted the ball being thrown away, they're coming towards you and they truck you. Those are the two most common instances that I've seen of people getting trucked. Here's the way to do it. The way to do it is you will see me, I am paranoid on sidelines. So what you have to do is you have to get yourself in position the first thing you do is make sure you're not in anyone's way who's working. And then the second thing you do is you look behind you. Before every play, you look behind you because you need to know how far can I back up? Is there someone behind me? Is there something that's behind me that's blocking my ability to, to go backwards really, really quick? And if there is, you need to move uh, because that play is going to find you eventually. So I've never been trucked on the sideline. I never will because I have awareness. But yeah, I would, I would love to see the sidelines be cleaned up a little bit. I just don't want it to come at the detriment of me being cleaned off the sideline. And I don't, look, I got, I got pretty good working relationships with these folks. So I don't think that'll happen. But yeah, yeah, there may be a few people down there who don't need to be down there. Now, at the end of the day, does it really hurt your feelings when you see someone get trucked? Or do you rewind it five times? Let's just all be real with ourselves here. A lot of you like a good sideline collision, or at least I think you do. Chad from Evans, Georgia said, hey, Thursday, today it's opening day. What's the story of young JP and his Atlanta Braves fandom? When I saw this question this morning, I said, this is a college football podcast. There's no place for this. But then I thought to myself, it's your podcast. Maybe you can tell a quick story. The year was, what was the first year I was in pre-K? It was like 92 or something. Anyway, the Braves are they're early on in their division title run in the 90s. I can't remember what year it was. Anyway, they're, they're early on in their title run. And their, their consecutive divisions, titles, one run. It was crazy. Man, growing up, the 90s, America peaked in the 90s, okay? And especially if you're a Braves fan, we peaked in the 90s. It was just a great time to be alive and a great time to be growing up. So I remember so vividly, we had a bus driver named Miss Long. Don't know where she is now. She was diehard. Pretty much everyone in the South was. So we have a pennant get won. In 93, the Braves and Giants had what they call the last great pennant race. Both of them won over 100 games. And back then, you didn't have an expanded playoff. So you either win your league and, and, or you're done. You either, you either win your division or you're done. So the Giants won like 103 games and went home. Crazy. So the Braves win. And the thing about it was it was neck and neck all summer. So, so every time you woke up in the morning, it sucked because the San Francisco games would be starting at 10 Eastern. And you, this was pre-internet. So you did not have the ability to just wake up the next morning and check your phone, which was on the wall, and see who won. And the newspapers didn't have the result. So you would have to turn on SportsCenter and see if the Giants won the night before. Most of the time they had. Anyway, when the Braves finally wrapped that thing up, our bus driver, when we got on the bus the next day, I remember she said, we're rolling the windows down today. It was a little bit cold. We're rolling the windows down. And I just will have all of you do the tomahawk chop throughout the entirety of our ride home. We just did the tomahawk chop. It sounded like a Chiefs game. It sounded like a Braves or an FSU game on our school bus. We did have to stop for railroad crossings. Because that's the law. You can't do the tomahawk chop at a railroad crossing. But other than that, we just did it all the way home. 
And I used to love that I had one of the first stops because I rode the bus to Meemaw's house. And my parents would come and pick me up after they worked. Yes, I was an out-of-district school kid, by the way, <clears throat> until I got turned in. Someone narked me out in fourth grade, and then I had to go to Harris County in fifth grade. So I remember I used to love getting dropped off one of the first stops. But that day, I wanted the bus route to be, to be inverted because I wanted to ride around and just sing and chant all day. So they dropped me off pretty early, 1201 35th Street there in Phoenix City, Alabama. And then they went on their way. And you could just hear them chopping all the way up to Somerville Road. It was a great time. Oh, the best of times. But yeah, I was, I was a diehard Braves fan from birth and still am now. And I want badly to be able to go to games. But it, it's hard to get down there with the schedule that we work. But I'm not complaining. Not complaining, mind you. Okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm probably going to be in danger Friday. And I will probably let you guys in on it if something really big goes down. I'm talking about storm chasing, of course. So make sure you're following Instagram and Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Because regardless of what you tell me, you may not be fascinated with doing storm chasing yourself. 100% of you would be fascinated with seeing a tornado. I know that for a fact. No one looks at a tornado and says, boring. And if you do, you're a weather casual. Thank you for listening to the Late Kick Pod. Make sure you are subscribed here and make sure, like I said, you're following on the socials. For producer Jesse, for director Colin, for director Bradley in there, for junior director Bradley, I'm Josh Payton. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. God bless.